Well, I'd like us to turn back uh, to the passage that we read in John chapter 1. Today, of course, uh, we think a lot about the birth of Jesus. At Christmas time, that's uh, when uh, large parts of the Christian church remember uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And uh, the big word that theologians use to describe what happened is the word incarnation. Uh, that, uh, that comes from uh, two Latin words, in and caro, uh, which means in flesh. So when we say incarnation, we are saying how we're talking about how God the Son uh, became human. Jesus is God incarnate, God in flesh. So incarnation is a big and an important theological word. But what I want us to do today is, rather than look at that big word that you'll find in lots of theology books, I want us to look at three little words that John gives us in the passage that we read. Three little words that describe to us what is involved in Jesus being born. And as we look at these three little words, I want to suggest that, that in these words, John is giving us what I think is quite possibly the best summary of what the coming of Jesus involved. These three words are very ordinary looking words that easily miss and on their own they don't look particularly important. But what I want us to discover tonight is that they are three massive little words. So what words are they? It's the words was, with and became. Was, with became. And we'll see them uh, as they're used by John in the passage that we read. These three words are crucial. They are teaching us some of the fundamental truths that lie at the heart of the gospel. And at the same time, they're actually forcing us to think about some of the biggest questions of life. So I want us to go through them for a wee while together tonight. So we'll start with was. John's gospel opens with the words, in the beginning was. You can see that uh, if you look uh, at, uh, at verse 1. And of course, uh, when John says that, uh, it's ringing bells in our minds because he's echoing the very first words of the Bible in Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The difference with John is that he's not just going back to the beginning of the universe, he's actually going back even further to the ultimate reality from which everything else derives its existence. And that's part of what makes John's Gospel so fascinating. You only have to read the first four words and you are confronted with the biggest questions of life and truth and reality. And if you think about it, if you, if you look at just the first four words, don't look any, any further past the first four words, if you look at those first four words, they're crucial for every single one of us because, because that, that phrase, in the beginning was is a sentence that we've all got to be able to finish. The universe has got to have an origin. Our existence has got to have an explanation. We've all got to be able to finish that sentence that starts, in the beginning was. So how would you finish that sentence? What would you say? What would the people that you work with say? What would the person on the street in Scotland 
in 2022 say, in the beginning was what? In the beginning was nothing? In the beginning was a kind of blob of something, potential? In the beginning was a higher power of some sort? In the beginning was a pantheon of gods, like in Greek mythology. In the beginning was, I don't know. How would you finish that sentence? And this is so important for every single one of us, because, because to start with, however we end that sentence has got to make sense. Surely it has to make sense of, of life and truth and reality. And even more importantly... The way you finish that sentence is going to determine how you understand the world. So, in the beginning was, whatever your answer to that question is, is, is your explanation for all that exists. So, it, it becomes an incredibly important thing for us to think about. Your ending to that sentence will tell you what you, what you believe ultimate reality to be. And that means that your ending to that sentence is either going to be inspiring if, if that ultimate reality is something worth building your life on. Or your ending to that sentence is going to be depressing if it's something so benign that it actually undermines the value of everything that you care about. Or worst of all, your ending to that sentence is going to be scary if it's either something that's unknowable or even worse if your ending to that sentence is wrong. That tiny word was on the first line of John's Gospel is forcing us to think about the massive questions of life. It's forcing us tonight to think about the eternal constant that's always been there. To think about the foundation and explanation for everything else that exists. It's making us think about whatever it was that was long before we ever were. Now, that probably sounds very heavy for a, for, for a Sunday evening after a big Christmas dinner lunch, but ach, you look brave enough. I think we'll just, we'll just go for it all the same because we do need to think about this because most people don't want to think about this. When we're confronted with these kind of questions, people tend to respond with, well, I don't want to think about that. And that's partly because in 2022, in Scotland and in the Western world, the number one antidote to anything that's slightly difficult or complicated is distraction. Just don't think about it. But that's never the answer. And so some people over the years have thought about this. They've wondered about, you know, well, what, where does the universe come from? And what we tend to see today is that people come to one of the following conclusions. People will, will say, well, in the beginning was something impersonal. There was something, a thing of some sort. Can't really explain what it was, but some kind of impersonal thing. Or it's something meaningless. Ultimate reality is, is ultimately meaningless, according to many of the world views today. Or for some people, they might just be like, well, we just don't know and we can't be sure. And maybe that's how you think, or maybe that's how people in your family think, or maybe that's how your colleagues think. When you ask the question about what was in the beginning, you just tend to shrug your shoulders. And you think, does that really satisfy you? How does John finish this sentence? 
Well, if you look at verse 1, you'll see that he says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, that's one of, one of the most famous statements in the Bible. And when we hear it, if you're anything like me, uh, two things will probably happen uh, in your mind. Um, in the beginning was the Word. Part of us thinks, wow, that is so profound. But at the same time, another part of us thinks, I actually don't know what that means. And I think that's how a lot of us can find this verse. It's certainly how I've often found this verse over the years. You think, well, I know that that's saying something incredible, but I don't really understand it. So what is John saying? What does he mean when he says, in the beginning was the word? As you may know, um, the word that's translated word on uh, line number, uh, on verse 1 of uh, John's Gospel is the Greek word logos, which means word, so it's a very accurate translation. And that term logos is a very important word in both uh, Greek and Jewish uh, literature of that ancient period. And as I'm sure many of you know, thousands and thousands of pages have been written over the years explaining how that Greek and Jewish background might help us understand what John means. And a lot of that stuff is really helpful and it's fascinating and it's good to read. But what I want to suggest is that that often when it comes to a verse in the Bible that seems a bit complicated or thinks you think, well, I don't really know how to understand this, the best thing to do is to just keep things as simple as possible. And I think it's a helpful thing for us to do just now, to just try and think of this as simply as we possibly can. So, when you think about the word, word, what do you think of? What comes to your mind? Well, I think two things tend to come to your minds. One is in terms of individual words. So that's either spoken words or written words that convey information. Dog or cat, sheep, house, whatever. Just individual words like that. The other, the other way that we think of it, though, is in terms of collected words that form a phrase uh, together or that form a body of information together. So when I say the word on the street is, you don't immediately think about the word dog being written on the pavement. What do you think about is the news. You, you think about what, what's been shared in the community. So the word on the street is that the dog has gone missing or whatever it might be. And so you can have individual words, uh, but we also think of, when we think of word, we think about but a collective body of information. We do that all the time. The Bible does it all the time as well. The Bible is full of important individual words. It's also full of the collective word of the Lord. And in many ways, that's where the, the, the emphasis will lie. God's word conveying information. And so that's a good basic starting point for us um, when we see that word word. But I think we can unpack it a wee bit more um, and, and I want us just to spend a few minutes doing that because, um, well, I hope it'll be helpful. Now, I'll just warn you that it's probably, it's like a wee bit complicated, um, but, but you all look quite fresh, so I'm sure you'll manage it if you, if you just roll up your sleeves of your mind uh, and we'll try and work through this together. Please just stick with me because I, I hope it will be worth it. Um, when you encounter a word, whether that's an individual word or a collective word in a phrase, several things are happening. First of all, there's a disclosure of content. 
a disclosure of content. So dog, cat, red, blue, all these individual words are disclosing content to you. A word conveys something, or we might even say a word reveals something. So when I say the word dog, you don't think of the letters D-O-G in a line that forms the sound dog. You think of an animal that's wagging its tail and that wants you to rub its tummy. And so when you encounter a word, something, some content is being disclosed to you. So that's one of the first things that happens. At the same time, there's also an interaction. So whenever you encounter a word, there's an interaction. It inevitably involves interaction with another. So that might be instant. So someone tonight might say, Merry Christmas to you. Or they might say, Good evening. That's an instant interaction conveyed through that word. But it might not be instant. You might send someone a text message. They might not reply till tomorrow. Or you might go into a dusty shelf in your house and take a book down that was written 300 years ago. Or you might read John's Gospel, which was written 2,000 years ago. There's still an interaction between the person who transmitted the word and the person who receives it. And then the result of that is action. Something happens. At the very least, there's communication. Information gets shared from one to another. That's true of a simple word like hello, which conveys a greeting. It's also true of much more complicated uh, words. I don't know if any of you got a complicated Christmas present that requires you to read the instructions. If it did, and you're reading the instructions tonight or tomorrow, somebody wrote them, you're now reading them, they're communicating with you through that word. There's communication between the person who transmits, the person who receives. And if that communication is effective, further actions will result. Stuff will actually happen. So to use an example from Christmas dinner, which I enjoyed a few hours ago, if I say pass the pigs and blankets to somebody sitting on the other side of the table, what's happening? Well, I'm disclosing information. I'm I'm disclosing the fact that that I identify sausages and bacon as pigs and blankets, and I'm disclosing the fact that I want them. So I'm disclosing content to the person that I'm talking to. That establishes an interaction because they listen to me, and uh, there's an onus then on them to respond. And the result is that I've communicated with them my urgent need for more sausages and bacon, and if my communication is effective, then the pigs and blankets are going to come my way. Now, all of that sounds straightforward enough, and I hope it all makes sense. What I want us to see is that something as kind of normal sounding as that is actually, it's actually an outworking of some of the fundamental aspects of our existence as humans. This is... This is making us think about a lot more than just sausages and bacon. It's making us think about some of the key things that lie at the heart of being human. Because when a word is encountered, fundamental elements of human experience all take place. And I want to give you three. First of all, a word has got to be personal. Now, what I mean by that is that it has to originate with a person. I don't mean that it has to be personal in the sense that it's talking to you uh, in a way that knows you. I mean it originates with a person. It has to be personal. 
And, and that makes sense because impersonal realities cannot create words. They might inspire words, but they cannot create them. So a beautiful flower might inspire a thousand poems. It will never write one. And so it has to be a person that the word originates with. Secondly, the word has to have meaning. So it has to be meaningful. It has to make sense. When I say to somebody at the Christmas dinner table, pass the pigs and blankets, they need to know what pass means. And they also need to know that at the dinner table, pass means a different thing to what it means on a rugby match. And when I say pigs and blankets, they need to know that at the table, pigs and blankets doesn't mean actual pigs and actual blankets. Because that would definitely ruin Christmas dinner. There has to be meaning. Accurate meaning. And so you've got, these, you've got words originating with a person. There has to be meaning there. And thirdly, encountering a word must involve a relationship. If you give a word, if you receive a word, it connects two personal communicators in a relationship. It might be the briefest of relationships when you just say hello to somebody when you're out walking the dog later on. But it's still a relationship because two personal beings have communicated in a way that has meaning. And this is where we start to see, but I hope, I hope we're starting to see that this concept of word is absolutely crucial to who we are. And this is, what I, this is why I definitely want you to stay with me if you can as we try to go through this. This idea of word is crucial to who we are. The relationships established by personal meaningful communication is at the heart of what's involved in being a human. In fact, we can even say that your word is more fundamental to who you are than your physical body is. Your word is more fundamental to who you are than your physical body is. You might say, I don't think I agree with that because there's, you know, surely there's not much more fundamental to who we are than our physical bodies. Well, I think I can prove it to you. I can prove it to you if you think about somebody you love who has passed away. I want you to imagine that the person that you love who's passed away, that their body was embalmed and preserved. And, and it had been displayed somewhere. And so imagine that you went and looked at that body. Would you feel as though you had been with the person? I doubt it very, very much. Because, as I'm sure many of you will know, when you see a body, it's just a shell. And you come away thinking, it's not them anymore. But then imagine that you went home, you opened the drawer of your desk, you took out a letter that that person wrote to you. What have you got in your hand? You have a word. And as you read that word, what do you find yourself saying? You say, it's them. You can hear their voice. You're close to them again 
the word, your word, captures and preserves a person in a way that a body or a corpse never, ever could. And I hope that that makes sense. I really hope that that makes sense. I hope that it helps you to see that this concept of word is actually crucial to who we are. So when you hear the word word, it's pointing to all of that kind of thing. And when we realise that, we think, hang on, this is, this is actually something really important. This is actually fundamental to human experience and existence. This idea of, of word, it's actually really, really important. And then we turn back to John 1, 1. And he is telling us that it's not just important. It's ultimate reality. The ultimate was of reality is a word. It's the word. That means that ultimate reality is personal. Ultimate reality is one in whom there lies ultimate meaning. Ultimate reality is one who is relational. Or it's probably clearer if I say it the other way around. John's telling us that ultimate reality is not impersonal. And it's not meaningless. And it's not unknowable. And the moment we see that, we discover that John is giving us the explanation for reality that we desperately crave. Do you want ultimate reality to be impersonal? Where everything's just ultimately forces and mechanisms. Do you want ultimate reality to be meaningless? Where everything's purposeless, chaotic and worthless? Do you want ultimate reality to be unknowable? Where unbreakable relationships are impossible? John is saying you don't need to have such a rubbish world view. You can have the world view that says in the beginning was the word. The ultimate was of reality, the constant of eternity, the absolute of existence, the was that precedes every other will be, is the word, the personal, meaningful, relational word. He is the ultimate was. Nothing came before him. There was never, ever a moment when this was wasn't. And that's why John can then say that from him comes everything else, which is exactly what he says in verses 3 and 4. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And so John's saying in the beginning was the word. Everything was made through him. And then you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you ask yourself, how did he do it? How did he create the universe? Well, Genesis 1, 2 and 3 says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. In other words, he created with a word. He created by speaking. That means that in the gospel's explanation of reality, the personal comes before the material. Meaning comes before mechanics. And relationships matter more 
than anything else. And that's confirmed by the second massive little word that John uses. The word with. John's getting us to think about ultimate reality and at the heart of that, uh, at the heart of his explanation of ultimate reality is the word. But he also tells us that the word is not the entirety of ultimate reality. In other words, in the beginning was the word, but the word isn't all that was there. The word isn't all that was. And that's because the word was with another. You see that in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. From all eternity, the Word was, and the Word was with. In other words, ultimate reality, according to John, is not just a was. Ultimate reality is also a with. Who was the Word with? John tells us he was with God. Again, this can very easily get very confusing and and I feel a bit bad because this is a lot to think about on on a a Sunday night after a big meal. But but just stick with me because I hope it's worth it. Um, What's John saying? He's saying that the ultimate was of eternity consists of a withness. The was, was with. And that withness is between what John calls the word and what he calls God. So that means that the eternal was, was not solitary and singular and isolated. There's a not aloneness about this was. The was, was with. But there's even more because at the same time, there's a not aloneness about this was, But there's also a not separate fromness about this with, because the word is both distinct from God and yet is also identified as God. You see that if you look at the passage, it says the word was with God and the word was God. So there's a not aloneness, the word was with God. There's a not separate fromness, the word was God. What is that describing? What is John saying? He is describing a perfect, harmonious, united relationship. The with that exists between the Word and God is so close, so harmonious, so intimate that they are actually one. And if you're reading these words for the first time, um, or if you're reading them uh, for the first time in a long time tonight, you would be forgiven for thinking, I don't know if I can get my head around this. Um, this is complicated. It is complicated by the time you reach the end of verse 1. But if you read a few verses on, John helps us to understand. Because in verse 1, he talks about the Word who was God and the Word who was with God. And you think, well, you've got this withness and you've got this, you've got this distinction between them. And yet there's this unity between them. Was God, was with God. What's going on here? Well, a few verses on, he tells us exactly what this involves. He tells us, down in verse 18, that really what's going on here is that it's a son at his father's side. The only God 
who is at the Father's side. Literally, it says, the only God who is in the bosom of his Father. And this, of course, is pointing us to the Bible's magnificent revelation about the nature of God. The great truth that Scripture reveals is that God is neither a cold, isolated singularity, nor a multitude of deities. Instead, what the Bible reveals is that God is both one and more than one. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's that telling you? It's telling you that according to the Bible, ultimate reality is relational. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit in a perfect, eternal relationship. In other words, the walls of all eternity consists of a beautiful withness. <clears throat> now you might be thinking, what difference does this make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world because it means that at the heart of ultimate reality, you will find the one thing that you know is more important than anything else. You will find love. This is why the Bible can say that God is love. That's not just some kind of vague, nicey-nicey thing to say. It's actually what God is. That from all eternity, that's the great was that's always been there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. According to the Bible, ultimate reality is the God who is love. And that means that as we share our lives together, as we share Christmas together with people that we love, or as we struggle through Christmas because we desperately miss people that we love, all of that makes sense. Your love for people is not some accident of chance mechanisms. It's not a charade or an illusion in an otherwise meaningless world. Your love for people and their love for you is a reflection of God. It's a reflection of the ultimate reality that explains everything else. A reflection of the one who in the beginning was and who in the beginning was with. And this is where we make sense of life. This is why the Bible and the gospel is the only place that will make sense of life. And I saw this captured brilliantly in a program that I watched the other night. It's the week up to Christmas, so it's the time to watch DVDs. And the other night I watched... Um, one of my, what is now one of my new favourite uh, programmes, uh, the Runrig documentary. So you may have seen it. It's a documentary charting the career uh, of Runrig. I love Runrig, fantastic band. Um, and the documentary is amazing, following their life story and seeing how everything happened for them as a band. Near the end of the documentary, Rory MacDonald, uh, who is one of the main singers, uh, and along with his brother Callum, is the main songwriter for Runrig. He said this. He said, I think most of our songs are about the spiritual quest. I can't believe that we go through our lives and all the wonderful experiences we have and all the love that we share in this life is all for nothing. He says he can't believe that. And he is absolutely right. 
And this is why the songwriter will always beat the scientist when it comes to connecting with people. If I announced to you that I was going to sell tickets for a public reading of a biology textbook, would you come? Would you buy the ticket? Would anybody else in their right mind buy the ticket? No. I would be on my own reading a book that I don't understand. But if Runrig put on a concert, 50,000 people will race to get there. And when they're there, they will all sing out as loud as they possibly can the words that say, There must be a place under the sun where hearts of old and glory grow young. In other words, there has got to be hope for the people who have lived and died before us and for us now. And it's all telling us that the answers that we crave are in the gospel. Callum and Rory MacDonald know that. So many of their songs are about the gospel. The with and the was of John 1 is where life makes sense. And this is what makes God so worthy of our worship. We can stand in awe before God because he is the eternal was. He alone is infinite, eternal and unchangeable. And we can gaze in wonder at God because he is the everlasting with As you go deeper and deeper and deeper in your understanding of who God is, you will discover more and more and more of a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit who love each other in such a beautiful relationship. We stand in awe before the eternal was, before the everlasting with. But there's actually even more. The most amazing word of all is the third one. The word became. John is telling us that the ultimate was of reality is the word. The word is the son who forever has been with the father. But the most amazing thing of all is that he became something he wasn't. He became one of us. That's what verse 14 says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the great act of the word. Remember we said a word involves a disclosure, a revealing, an interaction. It accomplishes contact and communication. When the Word became one of us through the birth of Jesus Christ, it is the ultimate self-disclosure of God. God is interacting with us. He's revealing himself to us. He's communicating with us so that we can know him. That's why John can say in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. In other words, the Word, he has made him known. Jesus has come. As the great disclosure of God. The great revealer of God. In other words, when we encounter Jesus, we are seeing what God is really like. And what is God really like? Verse 14 tells you. He's full of grace and truth. And isn't that exactly what we see in Jesus? We see truth. Jesus gives us the truth that we crave. 
He gives us an explanation for reality that makes sense. He gives us answers in a world that's so confusing. He gives us promises that he's never ever going to break. In him we see truth and in him we see grace. Jesus pours out the love of God towards people who don't deserve it. Towards people who carry the guilt and shame of the stupid mistakes they've made in their lives. People who've suffered because of all the brokenness in the world. People who are scared. People who are weak. People who have doubts and questions. The word that Jesus speaks to you is a word of absolute truth. And it's a word of amazing grace. So, bringing it all together, Jesus always was. He's the eternal God. Jesus was always with. He's the eternal Son of the Father. But a moment came when Jesus became. He became one of us. He didn't cease to be everything that he was before. But he became something that he'd never been. And that's the astounding reality of the incarnation. The eternal was who was forever with his father. He left it all behind to become like you. He became a baby, a child, a teenager, an adult. He became one of us. He did it as the ultimate disclosure of God, but he didn't just do it to show you something. He did it to make you something. He became one of us. So that you can become a child of God as well. That's what verse 12 tells us. To those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because that is what God wants. Do you know what that means? It means that as we stand in awe of the God who is the ultimate reality, the God who is the eternal was the God who is the everlasting with. As we stand in awe before him and gaze at that indescribable love and glory and majesty of the triune God, as we stand before him, God doesn't say, I want you to admire this love forever. He says, I want you to receive this love forever. And God the Father doesn't say, I want you to admire my son forever. He says, I want you to be my child as well, forever. And God the Son doesn't say, you need to reach up to your level. He says, I'm coming down for you. I'll come for you. I'll become what I never was before, so that you can know my Father's love as well. Jesus became flesh. He became one of us and he did it so that he could save you. He did it so that he could die for you on the cross. And do you see what that means? It means that on the cross 
the eternal word was silenced for you. The eternal son was cut off for you. The eternal was became crushable for you. The everlasting with was forsaken for you. And it's all because of what he became. He became one of us so that you can become his forever. Was and with tell you that forever God is love. Became tells you how much he loves you as well. So these are three massive little words and you've done incredibly well to stick with me through it all and I'm so grateful for your patience. I hope that you can see that these three little words are giving us everything that we need. Everything. Was gives you an explanation of reality that will satisfy you intellectually. You go and find a better was than the was that John gives you, you're not going to. That's one of the amazing things about the gospel. It gives you an explanation for ultimate reality that is intellectually satisfying. The word was gives you that. With gives you an absolute that your heart can delight in. We see God who is love, Father, Son and Holy Spirit with each other forever. We can marvel at that. Was gives you an explanation for reality that will satisfy you intellectually. With, with gives you an absolute that your heart can delight in. But became, that tells you how much you need to. Was, with, became. When you think of Jesus' birth, I want you to think of those three words. There are three massive little words from our amazing God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you as the eternal word who was in the beginning, who was with God from forever, but who became flesh and dwelt among us. And through your word, we have seen your glory. And we thank you so much for everything that you've done for us.